The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us. Also great to have my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. As well as our special guest uh, today, we have Adam Schwartz with us, who manages Black Bear Value Partners. Adam has nearly uh, two decades of buy-side investment experience. And uh, we're going to be addressing a uh, topic that I think is uh, near and dear to the heart of many of our listeners uh, today. Uh, we've talked about it in the past, um, and I think this will add a lot of value to uh, to all of you listening. Uh, Phil, why don't I um, turn it to you to kind of set the stage uh, a little bit? Yeah, sure. Thanks, John. So I've had the pleasure of knowing Adam now for several years. Uh, we've talked across a whole range of subjects, and I think... Today, we want to focus a lot on a follow-up to the episode we did. We'll, we'll talk about a range of topics, but mostly as a follow-up to the uh, podcast we did a couple of months ago about starting an emerging manager and what it's like to run and manage a, a, a fund from inception onward. And so to set the stage for that, Adam, first of all, welcome. Thanks for joining us. I'd love for you to just give us one or two minutes on your background so everybody knows about you and where you're coming from. Sure. So thanks for having me. Um, I am uh, a loyal listener to the pod. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's an honor, a pleasure to be, uh, to be on it with, with all of you. Um, you know, my background, uh, you know, as John mentioned, I've been on the buy side for about 20 years now. And um, I started off working at kind of uh, larger institutions. Um, and I spent the bulk of my career at a, a fundamental uh, investment fund called Fertree Partners, which at our peak managed about $13 billion. And and when I was there, uh, it set the stage for a lot of the decisions I was going to make later. It was a terrific place to be, focusing a lot on uh, different types of fundamental investing, but across various industries, uh, various types of securities, whether it's credit or equity. And it was an extremely talented team and got to learn a lot. Uh, about ways to look at you know different situations uh, from a variety of different perspectives. Eventually, as you know, time went on, I was thinking more and more about the opportunity to start my own partnership. And uh, when you go out, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but when you talk to different people about you know what you need and what you want to start uh, a fund, an investment fund, you get a whole range of answers from. You know, you need to go out and raise, you know, $100 million and hire a bunch of people and, and, you know, go down that one road and then raise capital. And then there's the other extreme, which is uh, start with nothing and just bootstrap a business 
Um, and then there's everything kind of in between. And so I know we'll talk about, you know, what path I decided to pursue, um, which was kind of a little bit of a little bit leaning more towards uh, the smaller business. But uh, but that really the the general idea was uh, to be investing in a concentrated and fundamental basis and uh, and just sort of pursue that uh, in the form that, you know, in the, in the way that we we. we organized and set up Black Bear, which we can talk about. I don't want to, I'll let you ask the questions. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. That's a good segue because I'm, I'm fascinated by people and I'm partially one of them that come out of big funds and in your case, a big successful multi-strategy fund, right? And then choose to do things that are quite a bit different versus you, you have some colleagues um, that we've talked about in the past that have come out and tried to kind of replicate that. So what do you think the pluses and minuses, the pros and cons are of doing it your way versus trying to just replicate that big institutional multi-strategy fund? Sure. So, so just to give everyone a sense, my way was basically, I started the fund where I was really going to be the only investor at first, slowly take on LPs, um, not have a headcount, not have a staff, keep overhead very, very low, have an pretty much uh, not an infinite runway, but a very, very, very long runway. Um, we'll talk about, you know, why I did that. But that was sort of my decision, which was a lot different than, you know, where I was coming from. I, I think a big difference, and I think it's a struggle for a lot of people, is that working at a big successful fund is can be awesome. I mean, I had a, a great, I was there eight years. I had a great time there. Um, learned a lot, had great colleagues. And there's a lot of pros. You have a lot more resources. Um, you you kind of you know get whatever meetings you want whenever you want them uh, to an extent. Um, but working at one of those types of businesses and then starting one from scratch and trying to replicate it uh, are very very different animals. Um, it's a little bit like in Moneyball where you know you say like you know they're the Yankees and we're the A's. You know you know you can't just wake up and decide you want to be the Yankees. I mean you can. It's just very unlikely. And there's a lot of risk that you entail. So, um, you know, the pros and the cons are, there are many, but I mean, the, the, the most obvious con to me um, when you're starting something like that is if you don't have, if, even if you have the financial wherewithal to make it last for a little while, if you take on a tremendous uh, operating, uh, you know, bunch of operating expenses and you take them on and it's going to, uh, take you time to raise money, you put yourself under the gun to basically either raise money from the easiest pockets. And typically the easiest pockets are also the, the types of investors who are also you know quick to come and quick to leave. Um, and you're not spending your time investing. You're spending most of your time marketing. Um, there's a whole bunch of other issues of having headcount and, and whatnot. But to me, the biggest issue was just the operational and business risk that you're taking by just basically taking on a, uh, a structure that costs a lot of money. And in reality is that it, it takes a while to raise, to raise money. Um, it, it, there is a little bit of a chicken and egg uh, issue that we could talk about, but uh, in terms of fundraising. There is. So what, what are some of the big, I mean, I, I debate this with people all the time. I used to debate it with, folks at my old firm, and I've certainly debated it with well-meaning outsiders at my firm in terms of that 
you know, I hate to say a deal with the devil, but I think most fund managers at one point or another have a chance to raise capital that they know comes with some pretty significant drawbacks. And I know personally, I've seen more than a handful of funds come undone because they took the wrong capital. Is that been your experience or how would you frame that? I think that's right. I mean, Phil, you and I've talked a lot about this. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, offline, but it's, it's, it's a challenge, right? Because, you know, you want to build a business and you want it to be durable. Uh, at the same time, it needs to start somewhere. So uh, to me, I think that like, I was very lucky, you know, and fortunate that I had done, you know, done well enough to, you know, basically kind of invest in myself. And I have an amazing spouse and we kind of made a family decision that we were going to steer our savings and money into base in, 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 into, you know, CapEx into, into Black Bear and start a business and invest in it and not uh, necessarily look for the biggest checks, but for the best checks. And what I mean is, is the best LPs. If, if, and we could talk about what, 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 what the best LPs means, but, you know, I see people, they make these deals and they take on money, whether they're giving up equity in their business or they're just taking on hot money, you know, money that, you know, wants to come in and invest for, you know, have quarterly liquidity or, you know, even to me, annual liquidity seems short term. Um, one of the lessons I learned at Fertree and I instituted it at, at Blackberry is, is, you know, my, for the, for the last five years, anyone who wanted to give me money, it was a minimum of a two-year lockup and, and it was non-negotiable. Um, it led to a lot of rejection, um, which is something you learn to deal with. But it also led to knowing that the people that were in the partnership wanted to be there. You know, I, I just think that when you start making these compromises early in the life cycle of your business, you're only going to make more compromises later. And uh, you hear a lot about the successes, the people that go out, they hire, you know, half a dozen people, they take on an expensive lease, they take on all these different things. And you'll hear about the ones who succeeded and you don't hear about the, you know, for every one, the, the eight or nine or more that, that fail. And you get the sense that, that, so that people make the conclusion that the only way to succeed is to try to aim to be that one out of 10 or one out of 20, whatever it is. And I just think that, you know, one of the most valuable things I did when I left Fertree was to talk to a range of managers that have both succeeded and failed from a variety of sizes and, and find out what was the consistent theme. And investment performance was not the consistent theme and who survived and who didn't. Right. Um, prudent business planning was, was the theme and, and having a long runway. Uh, was pretty much, you know, I would say 75% of them, that was the most consistent thing. So cir- circling back then into, because I, I tend to agree with all of this stuff. So what have you found to be, and one of the things you've been helpful with me uh, personally is kind of pushing me into certain and better directions when it comes to marketing or fundraiser, just kind of getting out there and engaging the world in that sense. What do you think the most effective strategies and avenues are for marketing? I think first is expectations. Um, You know, I think early on, I, you know, you want to create expectations in your head that aren't going to be disappointing. 
because if you're negative and feeling down, you just aren't projecting the kind of image that people want to be associated with. And I think early on when I was starting and I would go, I'd almost have like an agenda in my head of something I was looking for. And then if I didn't get it, I was sour about it. And that was not a great way to be. It wasn't a great way to live. It wasn't a great way to run a business. And the first thing I did was I kind of recognized that early on. And I said, look, I'm not going in anymore when I'm talking to people or educating people. I'm not going in with an agenda to raise money. I'm done with that. What I'm going to do is try and educate and teach and go back to kind of what I enjoy doing. And if the investment or the interest comes, that's, that's fine. But the reality is what I enjoy is the investing. What I enjoy is kind of, you know, helping other people connect the dots. If they decide that they want to invest with me or recommend me to uh, someone to invest or institution to invest, that's a bonus. And so what I found was that reaching out to people, uh, whether it's journalists or um, even just, you know, friends or whomever, if there's a topic that they wanted to get more knowledgeable about and sharing it with them and talking about it with them with no expectations of being in an article or being quoted or anything, just saying, I'm just, you know, wanting to share notes and hear your thoughts and I'll share mine. Uh, I found that to be a really helpful way. I kind of call it guerrilla marketing where sometimes it leads to great things, but there's no expectation. You know, most of the time it doesn't, but because I don't have the expectation in my head that I'm, I'm, there's no quid pro quo in my mind. Um, you wind up, it's always like a positive surprise. Um, letter writing also, it's, you know, it's old fashioned, but I've been doing it since I was younger. But I, if I heard or found someone that I thought was interesting, I'd write them a note and tell them that I really enjoyed it. And I would tell them about what I'm doing. And uh, could I, you know, could I ask them some questions and get smart? Again, no expectation other than wanting. 15 minutes of their time and I'm not pitching them to the fund. I'm, you know, talking to them and getting their advice. Most of the time it leads nowhere. Most of the time I don't hear back, but sometimes it does lead somewhere. And sometimes you build a relationship and they wind up being one of your LPs or advisors and maybe even friends. So um, do you have any, do you have any tips and tricks for drawing that line between having no expectations and getting your time wasted? Because I know we've, I'm sure all of us on here and <laughs> yeah. all of us listening have had experiences where Maybe somebody comes into you and asks for X, Y, and Z and, and a lot of time and attention. And it's pretty obvious pretty quickly it's not going to go anywhere. So what what do you do to head that off at the pass? Yeah, it's really tough. Early on, I don't think it's so obvious. Early on, I believe that every person that was meeting with me thought I was like the next great thing and it was just going to open their checkbook and write a check to me. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. And um, so early on, like there were, there are people out there and if you're starting a fund or you've started a fund, uh, you're going to experience this. There's no, there's no avoiding it. People who just want to talk and do meetings and take your ideas and use them for themselves. And you can't avoid it, but you'll learn to recognize it. And so I think that early on you meet with people, you set yourself up with, you know, a certain kind of time budget uh, of how much time you'll spend doing this kind of stuff. And what you'll see is you'll, you'll just start, if you're good at investing, you're good at kind of analyzing situations. Uh, you should be pretty good at figuring out who's wasting your time or not. 
And, and sometimes you just have to be direct and just say, look, like we've talked a number of times. Um, I need to know if like, are you underwriting me as in it for an investment? Or are you just trying to take, you know, are you, do you, are you just trying to, you know, share notes? And if you're getting something out of it at that point, if they're a friend, then obviously keep talking. But if it's just somebody that's, it's a one-way street, you, you learn to shut that street off. If it's somebody that you're getting value from and they're getting value, you, then it's not marketing anymore. Then it's idea generation. Um, but if it's somebody that's coming in and just taking your ideas or, you know, checking the box on, you know, we'll talk probably about an institutional allocation, but the institutional allocation business, a lot of time, it's just somebody bringing, you know, a list to their boss and saying, I did this many meetings, you know, I filled my quota and, you know, that's no fun to be a part of. So uh, you learn just to say no. I mean, if, if there's one, if there's a skill that I have gotten much better at um, is just saying no and not being apologetic about it. Just, you know, time is valuable and we're running businesses and you can't make everybody happy. So, uh, but, but the reality is you're gonna, you're gonna have your time wasted early on, especially this first couple of years, um, because you're not going to necessarily know who's wasting your time and you may not be as willing to, you know, end a meeting, end a series of meetings when you think that there's this like, you know, pot of gold to the end of the rainbow. Uh, it's tricky, right? Because everybody needs to get lucky and you don't want to truncate that option unnecessarily, right? But it's yeah, tough to I mean, draw look, that line. I think that a big I, I think a big part of this is like changing your mentality to be okay and actually seek no versus seeking yes. And 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 so like I actually look to be rejected and like I'm looking for ways that I can figure out if the person is going to be a good fit for me. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, we didn't go into this, but I, I'm the biggest partner in my fund. I, I know most of the managers in this have, you know, usually a big part of being on the fundamental and like a kind of a Buffett disciple is having a lot of skin in the game. Uh, so like, I don't want a bad partner in, in, in my fund. I don't want someone who's going to be distracting. I don't want someone who's going to be a nudge. Uh, I don't care how much money they're going to offer me. Like it's, they're out. And so, um, you know, it's so much better to kind of break up before you get married than it is to have to deal with the kind of LP divorce later. So I, I, I just think that like you need people to change their mentality. And if you're seeing someone who's asking questions that you're saying to yourself, God, this is annoying. Like, this is terrible. Like, it's only going to get worse if they give you money. It's not going to get better. It's not like when they give you the money, they're going to become any less of what they're, the way they're behaving. So changing your mentality and saying, wow, like I figured out this is not a good fit. And just saying to them, I don't think this is a good fit for us. Like, I don't think you'll be happy with what we're doing. And the beautiful thing is, is there's like, you know, Phil's heard me say this a million times. There's like 4,999 other hedge funds you can go and choose from. It's just not going to be mine. Um, it, I, I think it's just a, a good mentality to have. I, I totally agree. And so other than some of the structural elements, you mentioned a, a lockup, you've mentioned kind of setting expectations. Is it is it analogous to evaluating a management team that you'd consider investing in and partnering with in terms of considering prospective LPs? Or do you have something more formal like a checklist that you'd run down to say, you know, if if the prospective limited partner can't meet these hurdles or if they get too many strikes, they're out or that sort of thing? Hey, you know, I don't have anything formal, but I probably do kind of, if I had to put it down on paper, I probably, it probably would be, 
consistent, but it's, it's like the telltale signs. Like if someone's asking you, you know, certain things like, can we, here's the thing, when you start your business early on, let's say you don't have any clients, you know, you're going to have all the time in the world to talk to people, but you need to design your business, presuming it'll be successful. And so if your business is successful, think about what kind of LPs you'd want in 10 years. Okay. And then say like, well, that's only what I'm going to accept today. Now that's hard, right? Because like early on, you're going to like not be finding the right ones, but like you'll find someone who comes to you and says, well, I want to be able to talk to you. Can we get on the phone every, every month? Well, yeah, now we can, but if I had 20, 30, 40 LPs, that's not scalable. So you need to say to them, well, I I don't know if we really can do that. Like that, that that wouldn't work for me. If the business scales, like you're going to be really disappointed. Is that is that important to you as the LP? If they say, yeah, then you know it's not a fit. If they're really harping on the liquidity terms and when can they get their money out and, 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 and they're really focused and they're, and they're nitpicking on certain ideas. And there's just certain things that when you're underwriting them and looking at them, you, I think you know, like, do I want to be in a business relationship with them or not? Um, and if you don't know that, then you may not be ready to start a business. So like a lot of the a lot of the issues I see people like there's people who just reach out to me and ask me a lot of questions and they're good questions, but a lot of them sort of tell me that they're inexperienced in, in, you know, in the, in the business and that's okay. But I would argue and tell people go get some experience and see kind of what works and what doesn't. So then you've developed the skills and you've developed some of the instincts of, you know, who you're interacting with. Um, I don't know if that answers your question directly. No, that that does. That's that's really interesting. And one other thing, kind of along those lines, you sort of alluded to this earlier, but on the topic of being willing to share your ideas. So I've read your letters, obviously, and I know what you talk about and what you don't talk about. But where where do you think the line should be? I I know how I feel about it, and it's it's tricky. And I've sort of gone back and forth on it a little bit over the years. But where do you draw the line and the willingness to share ideas, both from the perspective that you're running a business where the ideas are your product, and you don't want to just mm-hmm. blast those out for no reason, right? And, or to people with you know no real intention of ever partnering with you, but at the same time they need information to make a decision. Right. They, they need yeah. to have something to evaluate themselves. So how do you balance that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I didn't answer this before when you're asking about marketing, you know, early on. Um, and I'm going to backtrack a bit and I'll, I'll take us back to this. But early on, you know. People said to me, well, how are you going to do the marketing? How are you going to get in front of people? And I said, look, I'm going to write these letters and I'm going to put them out. And eventually there'll be a body of work or somebody who wants to take the time to underwrite me and underwrite my, my thought process and just read them and say, I get, you know, how the, you know, similar to how any one of us underwrites a, a business, they'll be able to underwrite, you know, what I do. So to me, writing effective communications to my investors and w- w- to me was probably the bulk of my marketing. Um, I don't think I said that before, but that, that was the, that, that was the bulk of it. And talking to the, you know, different people about it was one way of, discussing the ideas, but um, I, I should have talked about that. In, in terms of what I put in the letter, it, 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 it's, it's changed over time. Early on, um, you know, my fund in business is still small, but when it was really small, um, I would probably put a little bit more info in there, but I still would limit it 
to, you know, every quarter I talk about our top five investments for themes. I don't talk about portfolio construction. I don't talk about things that are no longer in the portfolio. And I don't tell people beyond those top five names what we own. And oftentimes, uh, I don't talk about specific names. Like, you know, you and I talk a lot about the home building sector, but you were probably the only one that knew the names I was involved in, uh, or maybe a couple other people. But for the most part, I wasn't interested in sharing that for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, you know, people do read your letters. If you're buying smaller cap stocks or, you know, sub couple billion when there's limited float, uh, for better or worse, it could impact, it could get someone smarter on it. And if you're in the business of growing your business and allocating capital for the long term, you should want cheaper security prices. Um, so I'm not like necessarily like super interested in getting people to compete with me on this, on an idea that I really like, um, you know, also like, you know, just from the standpoint of, uh, you know, people underwriting you as you, as you've written more communications, there's more information out there that, you know, past letters where they should be able to, uh, look back and underwrite you without needing specific names to understand how you think. So it's a little bit of like, uh, a little bit of a balancing act because you want to share what you're thinking and how, why you like certain things. At the same time, you don't want to telegraph everything you're doing so that people who kind of want to, I don't want to say steal ideas, but certainly take ideas. Uh, you don't want to make it super easy for them, for them to do it. Um, and then once a year, you know, I said that quarterly, I send out my top five. Once a year, I show everyone what's in the portfolio and how the capital is allocated. Um, you know, I'm not at the point where I have to file 13 Fs yet. So I'm able to do that. You know, for now, that's how I disclose. So do you, do you often run into the problem? I mean, I've, I've certainly had this problem where people say, oh, we need, uh, you know, a real-time look at the portfolio or we need the monthly meeting or we need this or we need that. And is that just a, you know, you're not doing it for everybody. So you're not making a special exemption. Yeah. I just say I'm not, the, I'm not the fund for you. Um, you know, I've had fund managers that want to go through, you know, every name they want to see the portfolio, they want transparency. And it's in the, it's under the guise of we need, you know, we need transparency into everything that you're doing. And you can have a, you can decide to the business where you have SMAs, uh, you know, separately managed accounts, and they can see, you know, what's in it, depending on how that. that I don't run money that way, so I, I'm not entirely clear on how that how that works. But I my, I understand that then they can see through the you know the portfolio. I, that's just not how I chose to run the fund. Um, and so, to me, it's just again, it's about designing the a business. Everything comes down to you know, how did I design the fund? Why did I design it the way that I did? And, you know, every decision I make is kind of what I think is going to be, is going to get us closer to what I want the business to look like in 10 years from now. Um, and if it doesn't, then I don't do it. So if people need special treatment to invest, then we're, we're probably not the fund for them. Um, but with that, with that, what you wind up with is a great group of partners. And, you know, typically the type of personalities and the people that you get involved in your business have friends or no others like them 
and you wind up, it grows, but it grows slowly and organically. And as you perform it, you know, the word spreads and you wind up getting, you know, growing a little bit more and a little bit more until you have, you know, a room full of like-minded, uh, like-minded partners. But early on, you have to have the kind of the conviction and belief in yourself to, you know, to say no to a lot of those, uh, requests like, yeah. uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to jump in though, because what I, I thought you made a really interesting point is that if you wanted to grow organically, I think the key to that whole thing is just being even more patient than you originally thought was possible because I've seen time and time again amongst people that I know personally where it, or or even some really prominent you know examples we're all familiar with right I mean I think you could make a case that as successful as they were kind of behind the scenes you know people like Charlie Munger or Howard Marks or you know pick anybody really we're, we're doing the same things that they're now famous for, but they were doing it for 10, 20, sometimes 30 years before it really gained that critical mass and the snowball started picking up speed going down the hill. So is that, has that been your experience as well in terms of just having to really, you know, put the seeds down and, and let them grow for a really long time? Yeah. I mean, look, I think that you take whatever expectations you have and divide them by like five. I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that if you, you know, I don't know who said it, but like the key to, and maybe no one did, but I think, you know, if you want to be happy, have low expectations to an extent. You need to, you need to set your business up to last for a really long time because it takes longer when you're asking people, if you're going to make it hard for them to invest with you, if you're going to say to them, Hey, look, you're going to give me some of your capital and you've worked really hard for it. You're going to give it to me and invest alongside, and I'm going to charge you something fair on the lower end of where the market is. And you're going to give it to me for a really long time. And we're going to have ups and downs, and we're going to zig when others zag, and we're not going to own the market, and we're going to only own a handful of businesses, which means it's going to look like our prices are more volatile, our returns are more volatile, even though the businesses underlying them are probably more stable. We're gonna, there's gonna be a lot of ups and downs, but we're gonna do better over time, but it's gonna take a while. Um, if you're gonna say that to people, a lot of people are gonna look at you and say, eh, not for me, not for me. And they're gonna go with what's working and they're gonna go with what's popular and they're gonna go with the guys or gals who are telling them, give me your money and you could have monthly liquidity. Uh, you're invested in the stock market. And people don't understand that the reason you have the longer term lockup isn't because the stocks are liquid. It's because you don't want your LPs to jump in and jump out at the wrong time and be distracting to what you're doing as an investor. You want to be focused on investing, not on capital raising. Um, so as far as expectations go, I just think you want to set really low expectations and underwrite your business to failure. Assume that it's going to fail. Assume that, you know, how long do I have? How long can I live with, you know, if you're, you know, I have three kids now. How long can I live and run my business assuming I have no LPs? You know, if the answer is, is I need to raise money day one, personally, I don't think you should be doing this. Um, You know, that may offend some people and I apologize, but I think it's good advice because you need 
to be able to be emotionally divorced from capital raising and be able to be objective in your investment process. And the way to do that is to not really depend on your business for a number of years. You want it to, you want to basically be able to kind of like water it and let it grow the way you need it to grow without taking easy money or making uh, uh, compromises along the way. This is like when you're starting a business, it's your business. It's your name on the door. It's your opportunity to do things the way that you think you should do them. And uh, it just takes time. Um, so I don't know. I'm maybe rambling on a little bit here. No, so no, I'll not follow. at all. I mean, it, it brought up another good point, though. I've had people give me feedback to the extent that basically I wasn't selling hard enough and selling in the in the construct of giving potential LPs something to get really excited about. And my problem with that has always been that there's so much selling in this industry, so many people promising things they can't do, so many people disingenuously pushing things that they should know or do know that are completely unattainable. Whereas I, I take the other end and I try to be as realistic as possible and set expectations low, and but prudently low, right? It's not it's not about sandbagging. It's not about humble bragging. It's about being realistic and setting expectations that things are hard and things don't always go as planned. But I'm fully aware, and the further along in this I get, uh, the more aware I am that, you know, that there's a balance to be struck there. So what have you learned to do over the years to you know, capture your excitement, enthusiasm, and the potential for some really good returns that you've demonstrated with this, you know, inherent humility that it's hard and things go wrong and you need to have the, the proper expectations. Well, for once, sometimes I call you and complain. <laughs> so <laughs> when I'm having a tough time, I mean, let's be realistic. We all need good friends that we can call and talk to when the business has its challenges. So I think that, uh, uh, you know, having some people along the journey with you that think about the business the same way and can be a good uh, sounding board and talk you through, you know, everyone's going to go through some tough times, talk through the challenges and kind of keep you uh, thinking, you know, objectively, it's super important. Um, I think that you know, you just got to decide what you want. And so if you want really thoughtful kind of like sober analysis and you don't want to, you know, you want LPs, you, you know, like for you, Phil, and for me, I think it's similar. I don't think we want partners that want to be sold. I think that we want partners that want to invest alongside us. And that's very different. And so, uh, someone's telling me I didn't sell them enough, then they weren't going to stick around anyway, because the, yeah. the, I don't sell, I don't sell to my existing partners. I tell them what we're doing and uh, they can leave the partnership, you know, whenever they want under the terms of their partnership agreement. And I'm never going to say to them, no, you should stay and here's why, unless they ask me to, or, you know, but it's, everyone's worked really hard for their money and they have a right to give it to you. So I, I think that like, I just think that generally um, you need to basically build your business in a manner in which like kind of you deserve the LPs that you want and just behave that way so you get them and be really, really patient and, and just like 
have low expectations and really, I think have no expectations. Uh, and that doesn't mean that like be depressed and think that you stink and the business isn't going to go anywhere. What I mean is, is underwrite the business where you don't have, you, you know, you put the money in the checking account. Someone gave me great advice early on. He said, think about your next five years of business expenses, take that money and stick it into a checking account for the business and just kiss it goodbye. Don't link it to Quicken. Don't just keep it separate. And you've made that investment in your business and now see where things go versus mm-hmm. constantly, you know, drawing money down and reinvesting in business. Because for the first couple of years, if you haven't raised a lot of money, like I didn't raise a lot of money. Um, some of it was just by design. I didn't want to for the first year. I wanted to get the business up and kind of running and all my processes going. Uh you, you you want to just be you don't want to feel negative like uh, oh I got to invest in the business again this month you've made the investment it's done and you and you move forward um, but I think that like the reality is is that uh, if you set low expectations and you just go out and start meeting the right people you'll meet one it'll go it'll work and then you'll meet another and then just over time it's just you know you just wind up meeting all kinds of different quality of people and some of them are attracted to what you're doing and you build this you know group and the group just grows a little bit and a little bit but i just think that people you know when they read history you know i've talked about this and you hear about like fallow periods like maybe in the 70s for you know munger buffett and whomever there were years it wasn't like a year it was like multiple years and experiencing years of adverse uh, an adverse environment, um, it's very hard. Like it's not, it's not easy. Like there's nothing super easy about this kind of job, especially when you, everyone you meet is going to tell you about their greatest investment they made and how they're the greatest investor. And you hear about all their wins. Like it's a very, there's a lot of similarities between like that and like almost like being an athlete, like you're constantly telling people your mistakes and yet you're only hearing people's successes. So it could be a very frustrating business um if you don't go into it with the right mentality uh yeah yeah that's really interesting along those lines i mean one good thought that i've stuck with i really like that idea about making an explicit investment in yourself and in your business and and using the psychology to benefit yourself right and just considering it a sunk cost in the good sense of things like this money's already there you know i'm not i'm not going to worry about it. i'm not going to stress out looking at a a monthly or even an annual management company PL for a while, right? I think that could really help some people as well. I mean, one other thing about the the kind of cynical side of, of fundraising and marketing is, and I, I maybe one of you guys knows who said this, but I read this somewhere and it was another fund manager, but it wasn't somebody I know personally. So I can't remember who I should be giving credit to for this, but they said, and maybe it was, um, he was getting ready for the William Green interview. It might well have been Nick Sleep at Nomad. So Elliot or John, if you know this, chime in. But he basically said, I'm not easily sold on an idea. So if an investor or a management team comes in with an idea, I can immediately turn it upside down and see all the things that are wrong with it. And only by that kind of negative process do I eventually get to a yes. And so in the same regard, I'm not good at pushing those ideas on people, right? So if you can't sell me on something, I'm not going to be very good at selling you on something. And I think that's true of a lot of us. But at the same time, I've had to become uh, more aware and more adept of people that are good salesmen, right? And I'm sure we could all point to plenty of fund managers out there who are good salesmen. And 
look, it's a very legitimate skill and you, you have to be an effective communicator and uh, it, it's something you really do have to focus on. So uh, one last I thing for me. that if you're, oh, go ahead, yeah. I was just going to say, if you're an, if you're a, you know an aspiring business person, especially this is you know the investment business is a trust business very much because people are taking money and effectively saying you can do a better job than they can or a different job, and they're handing it over to you and giving you discretion. In your discretion, in in in, in your discretion, you could lose it all. Um, so it's a it's a huge amount of trust when they give that when they give it to you, and I think that you know it's extremely important at least with the investors that I have, the investors that I seek, is to be authentic. Um, you know, don't, don't sell. I, I think a sales tactic, if you will, is just, just, just to just be yourself. And, you know, to me, the people that go out and make promises they can't keep and, you know, make all sorts of grand claims and are constantly, you know, out there marketing and schmoozing, that's fine. But if that's not who you are, there are people who are designed that way, that like doing that, that's fine. Um, they should go do that. But if, you know, I, I tend to think that those in this community, especially people who are kind of more of the bookish kind of fundamental ilk, um, they're a little bit less, maybe a little bit more introverted. It's okay to be that way. Like you can be yourself, you can be opinionated. Uh, you can be authentic. And, you know, the, the, the great thing about the internet and the world that we're in now is that it's not that hard to get your messages and communication out in some form, whether people look at it or not, who knows. But it's not like, you're, you know, we're 30, 40 years ago, there's no email and, you know, you have to send out, it, it was, it'd be very hard. You'd have to like really go out and do the, uh, you know, hand-to-hand combat and have people meet you and see you and, you know, and, and, and talk to them. It's not like that anymore. And so there's a lot of different venues and avenues to sort of get your messaging out. But I think that just in general, just be authentic and, and just be who you want to be um, and be really clear and direct about what you want to do and be really clear and direct about mistakes you make along the way. Um, and then you sort of, people can underwrite you for you and uh, and decide if you're, if you're the kind of manager that they want to invest in. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think it, it holds true in the investment process for sure. And I think it's very true in this, in the business side as well, that if you, you know, look, there's just like everything else we've been talking about, there is a balance. There's almost a paradox at a lot of points, right? I'm always trying to push myself in new directions, trying to learn new things, meet new people, develop new skills, but I can't, fundamentally change who I am, what I do, what I believe in, what I find interesting. And, and the same is true here. And where I really cringe, isn't it watching, you know, the natural salesman, right? I mean, the type of person who could sell ice at the North Pole is a gift. I mean, that's just a talent that some people have. What I really cringe at is the people that try to do that when it's just so obviously something they're terrible at and that they hate doing and, and some marketing advisor told them to do it. So, and the same, I think, holds true in investing, right? I mean, we've talked about that a lot on this podcast, that if you don't enjoy, you know, distressed investing and you're forced to slog through it, you're probably going to suck. And if you don't understand and don't like and don't enjoy high growth tech investments, that's not going to work out well for you either. So you really have to under, understand yourself as you go. So one thing, I mean, oh, go ahead. A big, a big thing for a lot of investors is just you need to love this. Like you're competing against people 
like you or like me or like Elliot, like John, people who love the business, we love it. Um, if you're a value investor for the last 10 years, who's not been as invested in, you know, the tech or the growth space, you know, that's, you know, that's me. Um, it hasn't been so great. It's been painful at times, but I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I, I just love it. Um, you know, you know, if you enjoy it, you know, that it's, it's, it's kind of your calling if you're willing to do it for free, let alone if you're willing to do it and actually have years where you're losing, where you're losing money. Um, and I just think that like, you want to be really, really passionate and love it. And that will ring through when you're marketing or talking to people, um, and you're running your business. It also gives you the energy to move forward when there are tough times, which you're inevitably going to, going to encounter. Um, it, it's, it's impossible to do this and go in a straight line up. Yep. Totally agree. One other thing I want to touch base on real quickly, just cause I think it's interesting. I think other people will find it interesting too. You have quite a background playing poker. What are some of the parallels you've been able to apply? You know, we read all these books from people like Annie Duke, who, you know, talk a lot about making decisions in, in probabilistic uncertain environments and, and, making bets, so to speak, and that the parallels are obvious between all areas of business, sports, certainly investing, you know, what, what sort of connections have you made in, in your, from your, your poker self to your investing self? Um, I think that, I think the biggest thing is learning how to lose, even when the odds are in your favor. Um, you know, you show me a good loser and I can show you a winner. Um, you show me someone who wins, you don't really learn a whole lot about them. But, you know, when I'm at a poker table or when I'm in the investing world and I can see how someone handles adversity and handles losing, even when they were right, even when they just got unlucky and can stay cool and calm and move on to the next hand or move on to the next situation and still be coolly rational um, or at least know themselves enough to take a break and chill out and get themselves back in the right headspace. That to me is a gigantic parallel um, between the two. Uh, so is that innate, or can you can you teach yourself that? Because that's so fascinating, right? I mean, as you mentioned, I don't think anybody's going to be successful in this world without being intensely competitive, whether it's sports, poker, investing, business, whatever it is. But then I, I totally agree, and I, it was one of the other questions I had on my list to ask you about: is how did you learn to handle rejection, right? Because presumably, until you started this. <laughs> This journey, uh, you know, up through your career at Fir Tree, rejection in high school, college, career hadn't been a prominent part of your life, and now it it was. So, how, do you think you just had that ability, or is it something you actively trained, or how do you frame it? Yeah, I definitely did not have the ability because if you said how would I, how did I handle rejection? I would say at first, not well. Um, it, it, I, some of it is just kind of developing the scar tissue like you just kind of develop a callus and you're not it just doesn't bother you anymore um uh because you're right like when i had left virtue i hadn't really experienced i had ups and downs in my life and whatnot like anyone but when you're starting a business you're just gonna hear no an awful lot and um especially you know that's gonna test you and you're gonna know do you believe and 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 there's parallels with, with, with gambling or poker or whatnot, what, what I'd call advantage gambling, um, where you know you're getting the money in good um, and you're losing and you know you're, you have another expectation to win again. And some people will pull back and pull it. They, they won't know, but, you know, 
they won't have the gumption to make the to make the investment of the bet again. Um, so you know, but you have to, even if you're going to quote unquote you know lose or get rejected or you know things like that. So uh, you know, the 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 reality is is you some of it I think is nature and some of it is nurture. So I think that I've always been a games player, if you will, where I could accept losing and I understood that it was part of the part of the deal when you're when you're uh you know playing poker or doing things of that nature um and you want to just make sure that the the advantage is you know tilting in your direction in one form in one form or another um but you also have to be objective and say like if, if you're continuously losing you have to say am I doing something wrong am I underestimating my opponent am I overestimating myself am I sitting in a bad game Am I doing something that's like like making me exploitable? Um, all all that kind of stuff that that translates over, and I think that that process is the same as in investing. When you invest and you do a post mortem or a pre mortem or whatever, and you're looking at it and you're saying, you know, why did I do this and what happened and was it uh, uh, an error of process or an error of outcome? And it's 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 kind of the same thing. And as long as you're like painfully objective and you have like, you learn how to like turn the volume on your ego down, um, then you have the ability to, uh, to kind of like just be like, ver- like ruthlessly objective and just like make the best decision going forward and like leave the mistake or the outcome, not even mistake, but like just the bad outcome behind and move on to the next, the next hand. So, there are tools to do it, but I think that you have to be open-minded and you have to have like a pretty low ego. Um, and, and that's not easy like that. I think takes some learning and some, uh, coaching and frankly, some losing, (laughs) like you just have to like get kicked, fall down and pick yourself up. And you have to see that you can get through and go on to the next thing. Yeah, for my two cents, I really like the notion of both building a callus, like you said, as you experience some of that friction and losing and you just get used to it, just like a lot of other things, but also the the idea of actually playing these probabilistic games on purpose where you force yourself to go through the exercise of making a good decision and still losing money uh, or still struggling because that's that's just life. So anyway, John, we're, we're running up against time. Do you want to jump in on anything? I've been monopolizing the conversation so much over here. Yeah. Thanks so much, Adam. Uh, great insights here. Um, you know, I'm wondering, you talked a lot about kind of uh, designing a business to fit your investment approach um, and kind of how to approach marketing. I also had this thought that maybe, um, you know, you also got to design it around uh, your personality. You know, I mean, some folks are just extroverts and some are introverts. And I think um, their approach to marketing will be very different and probably should be just, you know, because of, I think, the stress factor that would be involved if an introvert tries to do what the extrovert is doing. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? I, I think that's perfectly well said. I mean, if my business was predicated on me having to go to large ballrooms filled with people and shaking hands and talking about my fund, I'd probably break out in hives. Like that, that to me is like, not only is it something I don't enjoy, it's a little bit almost like terrifying to me. Um, on the other hand, to somebody else 
it may be the greatest opportunity and appeal. And so I wouldn't want to tell that person, hey, you should design your business the way I design my business because we're different people. So I think that people need to know them, you know, know themselves and design their business a manner in which their talents and not only their talents, but what you enjoy. If, if you know, if you're going to start a business, you know, you're taking a lot of risk. You're taking mostly opportunity costs of what else you know you could be doing. So I just tell people design it in the way that you would want to run it, and then if you fail, at least you failed your way. Um, versus failing someone else's way. That, that, that to me would be like the big, that to me is failure. If I, if I had started Black Bear and it didn't work and I had done it someone else's way, I'd consider it a failure. If I started it and I tried a bunch of things and it didn't work, but I was doing it my way, at least I learned a bunch of things. And at least I could look in the mirror and say, we attempted it, gave it a good try. It didn't go well. You know, thank goodness that's, that's not the case and it's, it's been going well, but you know, but like, I just think that you need to be realistic with yourself about what you want and what you also, what you define success as is, is success having the most money is success having independence is success having freedom to, you know, for my, with me, leave work at times and pick your kids up at school. Like there's just different people have different definitions of what their idea of success is. Um, so I think you just need to be realistic with yourself, um, and also just be kind to yourself and not not too hard. It's 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 a challenging business. It's it's not easy. It's a lot of fun, but it but it's not the easiest thing in the world. So you just have to you know keep pushing forward. Yeah, and I think um, you know I would just mention um, that as much as it seems that uh, you know extroverts or people who go out with huge claims that end up not actually uh, materializing, but in the meantime, they raise a ton of money and, and make a lot of fees for themselves. As much as it seems like those are the folks that are succeeding in, in the current environment or, or the world right now, I also feel like um, that the world has never been friendlier to introverts um, because of how you can get your message out there and, uh, you know, there's this concept of inbound marketing. And I think that is a, an introvert's dream to basically um, let the world know what you're about, uh, whether that's through letters or other types of communications. And then you get the right kind of inbound interest coming your way. It, yeah, it, perfectly said. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, that that sounds like a godsend to me. It's something that I'm, you know, I'm trying to do. So, um, I, you know, I just think in general, like, like you said, you know, I, I just think you want to design your business in a manner in which your business isn't fragile, and you have a runway, and uh, uh, and you're happy, and you enjoy doing what you're doing, and you get the kinds of partners that you want. And you design things in a manner in which you deserve them. So uh, if you're extroverted, I, look, I'm a little jealous. Like, I think that that's, it's a great thing to be able to go out there and really pitch what you're doing. Because um, I do think that there are probably opportunities that are out there that are looking to be, you know, people who are looking to allocate capital. But 
um, you have to kind of be who you're going to be um, and pursue your business appropriately. Terrific. Um, Phil, any, any last uh, questions or comments? No, I know we're bumping up against the time limit here. So Adam, thank you for coming on and, and sharing your thoughts and wisdom on this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Great. Well, thank you so much, Adam. And thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, so much uh, wisdom here from someone who is uh, in the trenches and building a, a real business. So um, wonderful. Thank you so much. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.